the much-awaited book of Philippians. So excited to get into this book. Um, there is so much here. I, in many ways, this was a book I was really thinking I wanted to head towards for our morning messages on Sunday as we finish Hebrews. But because Glenn has been teaching through it, I wanted to be sensitive to those in his class. I've tried to kind of look around what the other men are teaching in our adult classes and not go there. You know, I don't want everybody... I thought about teaching John, and I thought, oh, all Tyler's class is going to go, you know... Um, Tyler did a better job with that, and I'm sure he did, um, but I didn't want him feeling like, oh, it's John, 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 so, you know, we didn't go there, and, um, but this is going to be an amazing, amazing study. Uh, it's just incredible to consider the beginning of this great book. It, it was a delight to see that all that Ezekiel revealed to us, and now we jump ahead 600 years from 586 B.C., in the beginning of the diaspora, those that were cast out into captivity in 586 B.C., and we launch ahead to 50 A.D., 600 years, into really what is very much of a current situation. Even though we're still almost 2,000 years removed, the parallels in this book and in our culture are stunning. In every way, truly. And we'll even see some of that as we begin tonight. And the reason of these cultural parallels is just because in that day and age, in that unique climate of Philippi, there were things that, that they could be written as if they were modern-day America. So it's going to be exciting to see. So let's take a minute. Let's look at the first few verses and then I'm going to come back and address some of the context that's talked about there and a few other particulars. Follow along as I read the first few verses here of Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Boom! Three times in five verses, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we're going to get a little gospel as we go through this text. And the gospel itself mentioned. And the Father mentioned. There's just, there's so much power even to begin. Verse 1 introduces us to our author, Paul. Uncontested by nearly every scholar. Unlike some who haven't quite been enlightened to Paul's authorship of Hebrews, um, this one is clear. We know absolutely that this is, Paul is the author of Philippians. And uh, Paul, the eminent apostle, writes this letter. And the reason that it is uncontested is because of its content. There's nothing in the letter that's so controversial as to account to a forgery. Nothing that would motivate a forger, as Dr. MacArthur notes. That's an important little piece for us as we understand the Bible. There are those today, and it's becoming more and more prominent, people are trying to tear apart the Bible, and the first thing they try and do is they try and tear apart the authorship. 
because when the canon was being determined, actually the canon wasn't determined, God determined it, but when men were looking at it and they were looking at other books to see if they may be part of the canon, one of the main issues was authorship. If the authorship could not be determined in almost every case, of course, Hebrews is not specifically delineated, but those men knew it was Paul too, so they really weren't worried about it. Um, in those days, you know, there, that was the main issue with whether or not a book could even be considered. So men today go to that same track and they try to tear down the authorship to determine whether a book is truly valid. And many of Paul's other books are attacked for authorship and they would say, well, Paul never would have written this. This would have been a forger because Paul never would have had this idea or Paul wasn't here then. And they try to do anything they can to detract from that authorship so as to remove the authority of the introduction and the author. But in this case, nothing could be further from the truth. But remember that as you read some of the other books, as you read through the other epistles. Keep that in mind. This book does not have those controversial matters, and we'll see why as we move along. Timothy is also introduced here with Paul, and we'll come back and we'll talk about Timothy. The thing for us to note right now is Timothy is not, Timothy is not the co-author with Paul. He is mentioned here with Paul because he is his ministry partner. There are some who believe, and I think it's reasonable to assume that Timothy may have been the amanuensis, I can never say that word, the one who was the scribe. Most of Paul's letters are dictated by Paul to someone else who wrote them. Many believe that Timothy is mentioned first here, not only because he was with Paul, as were some others, but because he may well have been the one to whom Paul dictated the letter. We'll come back and again talk about Timothy more. Um, he describes himself and Timothy as bond servants. Some translations have servants here. Uh, we need to recognize what this is. This word is the Greek word doulos. It is the word slave. It is the word slave. Because of the cultural confines and the horrors of slavery in our modern and even our ancient societies, Translators are hesitant to use that word in all but the rarest cases where there's any potential of including men with this or, or bringing a consideration that slavery may have been somehow acceptable. And in our day and age, with all that we're going through in this week, this is a pivotal time to consider this word. Because the problem is no one recognizes what biblical slavery meant. Biblical slavery was an absolute abandonment to God as a master, to the one who was perfectly benevolent. In, in many days and in many situations, even in slavery in different parts of our world and cultures, there were times where the slaves were given property, there were times where the slaves were given rights and where they were given opportunities. Now, nonetheless, it was still slavery. It was not the same as what the Bible talks about. But we need to recognize that distinction. We need to recognize the weaknesses and the sinfulness of men in bringing that about, but to acknowledge that slavery to God is not a bad thing. There is a wonderful book. And if you have not read Dr. MacArthur's book, Slave, you need to consider it. I mean, 
With 400 works, we could talk a lot about the books he's written. But I will tell you, the book Slave is a fabulous book. It is a book that has great theological depth. It has great application. So consider that. If you're you know, not into buying books, unlike some of us who have way too many and you want to borrow one, I have that book. Um, as I've told you many times, my library is the Lord's library. And if you want to borrow something out of it, you are welcome to it. Just let me know. Come grab it. Got a little card. We'll write down what you've got. You take it. No real check back time. If I need it, I'll have you on the card and I'll call you. So, um, but it is just, it's a fabulous piece. And we need to recognize that, that Paul, Paul was excited to be a slave of Christ. He was excited to be one who was indentured to God in all things because the provisions that God gives are beyond magnanimous. Paul addresses this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Saints here is literally the holy ones. And it is, uh, in a lot of cases, when we see this plural form of the word holy, it means saints. And that's kind of a standard translation. But this is unique because it has the word all and the definite article the. So really, although all the saints is an appropriate translation, all the holy ones is what he's trying to convey. He's trying to convey what it means to live as one who is a slave of Christ. One who lives separate from the world. One whose life is marked by a continual process and pursuit of sanctification. And that's what it means to be a holy one. Holy living. And holy living not just in general, but in Christ Jesus. You know, what a picture we've had. Michael Friend. Holy living in Christ Jesus. Avita Bryant, holy living in Christ Jesus. Mary Benefield, holy living in Christ Jesus. Why does God give us these amazing gifts? I know that for these, their loved ones, um, that question is asked a lot. But how about for us as a church? Do we ask that? Do we stop and recognize the gift that God has given us to look at these people? I mean, if you are missing a chance, do not miss a chance to go visit Dot. I mean, it's such a blessing. She just, she just lights up the room. It's a picture. It's us. I want to be there. I want to follow that the rest of my life. I want to get to the end of my life and have people say they want to come see me. I'm not going to go see that grumpy old... No, I want people to know that's a man who's continued to follow after Christ perfectly. No, but that's what we have. That's the blessing of our senior saints and we need to recognize them. We need to encourage them. This is what Hebrews 11 is all about. We're going to get there in a few weeks in our Sunday morning study. And you know, on and on and on, man after man after man, woman after woman after woman, all of these faithful people. Why? So that we will be faithful. Because what's the danger? That we won't. That we won't. That'll be just something we have. We're just Christians. So it's not that big a deal. Well, he goes on and he writes to those living in Philippi. According to uh, Marcus Bachmuel, um, Philippi was founded in the early 4th century B.C. It was fortified by Philip of Macedon. 
Now, that may not mean much to us immediately, but Philip, whom the town was originally named after, Philippus, was the father of Alexander the Great. So, he was a, a major figure. And as he died and his son took over, we know that Alexander the Great conquered the modern world faster than anyone ever has. And short of the Lord's return, my guess, than anyone ever will. Nuclear weapons or anything else. And there was, of course, a reason for that. And we've discussed that reason before. God allowed Alexander the Great to move through the entire modern world and conquer that world because God placed in his mind a singular element that no world conqueror has previously endeavored into. And that was, I'm not just going to go conquer, but I'm going to make them mine. I'm going to continue to bring soldiers in everywhere I go, some of them as slave soldiers. Those that become faithful, I'll move up in the ranks. So he had this whole hierarchy within the military structure that he was using, very elaborate. But he would also drop off some of the most faithful of his men. And he would leave a significant group of them. And he'd say, your job is to stay here, to marry the women that are here, and to force the Greek language and the Greek culture into these communities. So as he went and as he conquered the world, he left Greece behind him. You know, now I, I'm going to, uh, of course, confess my sins as Scripture tells us to, one to another. I, I hope none of you have seen Big Fat Greek Wedding, you know. But it is all Greek. It all comes from Greek. And, and that's what Alexander the Great did. He left Greece everywhere. And as he conquered the entire world, the Greek language was there. God used Alexander the Great to bring that language to the world so that he could bring the gospel through that language. And everyone knew it. And not only did he bring it, but he brought in a language that was very, very specific. Greek is a highly evolved language. It is not overly figurative and picturesque. It's very direct. And, and, and therein, it's very specific in its detail. So as the gospel came, there wasn't much question about what was going on with it. So this was the beginning of Philippi. Through Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great, but the defining event in Philippi was in 42 B.C. In 42 B.C., Mark Anthony, name that might strike your attention from a history class way, way back, Mark Anthony and Octavius defeated Brutus and Cassius in 42 B.C. in Philippi. This became a dominant event for the city of Philippi. We'll see why in just a minute. But what it did is it ended the Roman Republic and it began the emperorship of Rome. Flashback, Brutus. We go back to Julius Caesar about 15 years before that. And the famous line from the play Julius Caesar, a tu Bruti, you too, Brutus, would come after me. Julius Caesar was beginning to establish himself as dictator, as emperor, and Brutus had had enough. So Brutus, along with others, conspired against him and they killed him. Well, now Brutus battles against these men. He gets defeated, and so also is the end of the Republic. Before that, there were all the Roman senators, and it was a very uh, somewhat democratic system. Well, that all ended right here in Philippi. And as it ended to mark 
the importance of that battle, Philippi became the first full Roman city outside of Rome itself. If you were a citizen of Philippi, you were considered a citizen of Rome. What did that mean? A bunch. Number one, no poll taxes and no land taxes. The Roman Empire survived on taxes. If you were in Philippi because of this great event and a citizen of it, no, of the, no taxes in those two major areas. Because of that, many of the Roman legion ended up going to Philippi and living there. Philippi um, became thoroughly, a thoroughly Roman city. All of their inscriptions on the city walls were changed to Latin. Uh, the Roman culture was embraced fully. And the citizens also considered, again, citizens of Rome with all of these extensive legal and property rights. They even changed the official language from Greek to Latin, in addition to all of the carvings on the walls. Now, even though Greek had gone across the entire world, we might think, wow, is this going to circumvent the spread of the gospel? Is this going to keep the gospel from going to Philippi because now they're speaking Latin? Not at all. Because the Lord's pretty much got this under control. And even though the aristocracy, the elite, were speaking Latin, they couldn't function on Latin alone because Philippi is not a very big area. And all around Philippi are all these rich farming areas. And so, in fact, it was founded initially because of all the springs that they found of fresh water, which are not very prevalent in that particular part of Greece. So there's all, these, all these, these agricultural crops there. There's also, because of that, there's a lot of workmen. Well, the workmen, the farmers, they speak Greek. So if you want to carry on, you want to do business with the farmers and the workmen, you're going to speak Greek. So basically, although they said the language was different, Greek remained the language that was discussed and that was used day to day. Geographically, we find Philippi on the northern coast of the Aegean Sea, what is modern-day Greece. From the west to the east, if there was a series, a string of cities that were, were within about a 50-mile range. This is, I don't know how Alabama developed, but this was very much how Montana was. They were basically Pony Express route towns. And every 15 miles or so, there was another town set up so that as the horses came, it could get there and it could rest. They could water them, change them if they needed to, and they also became stage stops. So that's how the West was won, and I don't know, maybe how uh, we see Greece becoming. But there was these series of towns. You will know some of these, having heard some of these names before. There was Berea, Acts 17, and the good Bereans. It was the westmost city. Then we came to Thessalonica, the church of the Thessalonians. There was Amphipolis was next. Then we came to Philippi. And the last one was Neapolis. All cities that are on the Via Ignatia, this is the major Roman highway that went through that region and eventually led around the Aegean Sea and back to Rome as all roads led to Rome. So there were these series of cities. Now what becomes really important about this is that it was about 10 miles from Neapolis to Philippi. Neapolis was a coast city. It had a port. 
Philippi didn't. It's inland just a little bit. In fact, it's a very unique place because there's a significant mountain range that sits right behind Philippi. So it had that attraction of being near the coast but not on it. And it also had this beautiful mountain range. So it was as well as all of the springs and an attractive place for people to live. So many settled there because of all of those details. The Roman city, again, had great attractions because of the tax situations. But what we find out is that it became a major port that people came through because of Neapolis. See, I mentioned those cities as you go from, well, on your side, from west to east. All right? Now, when you got to the east, to Neapolis, you basically were at this port city if you wanted to continue on the Via Ignatia the next city that you would get to would be Troas. You had to go all the way uh, around Troas, about 250 miles, to get to uh, Troas, which is actually in Turkey, on the, the eastern border of the Aegean Sea. So, or you could get on a boat, which is what Paul usually did. He got on a boat in Neapolis and he went to Troas. So all of the people were typically coming into Neapolis, and then their next stop, 10 miles away, was this cool little mountain town of Philippi, this place that had great benefits because it was a Roman city. And many decided that they would settle there and live there. To further complicate things, if you wanted to go, the, the challenge with going the 250 miles was, you had to go across a honking big river right before you got to Troas. So not only did you have a 250-mile walk, but you had a river to go across that was probably near the size of the Mississippi. It actually connected the Aegean Sea with the Sea of Mar- Marmara, um, which is just off the Black Sea. There's kind of three seas that come together from the Black Sea to the Aegean, and there's these rivers that connect them. So if you wanted to go around all of that, it was a 600-mile walk. Uh, let's see, boat for a couple days or 600-mile walk? Yeah, B. Um, so that was the, the geographic consideration and a huge time saver. Religiously, Philippi is first Paul's first Gentile church. This is important for us because we too are pork-loving Gentiles, or some of us are. And um, this first Gentile church that Paul planted... Now, on Paul's first missionary journey, he went primarily into Asia Minor. For you ladies that have been in the ladies' Bible study and gone through Acts, this will be old news. For, forgive me for repeating the information you know. But on his first missionary journey, he went into Asia Minor. And as he went in there, he went to uh, cities such as Perga, Pisidia, Lystra, Derby, all again in modern Turkey. On his second missionary journey, He went by land north from Jerusalem into Syria to Antioch and then he continued on to the Via Ignatia all the way up towards the Black Sea and then he turned to go to the west and went across the top of the Sea of Marmar and ended up in Philippi. That is why this became his first Gentile church plant because all of the regions in Asia Minor All of those cities of Lystra and Derba, Derby and and, um, Perga and all of these, they were all cities that had part of the Jewish diaspora in them. 
when the Jews had been cast out of various regions, they ended up in Asia Minor. So when Paul went on his first missionary journey, you'll see in those chapters 13 to 15 of Acts, he's teaching in the synagogues. Well, now when he gets to Philippi, it's a totally different situation. Now, as he moves out and he goes from Troas to boat, by boat to Neapolis and to Philippi, this first Gentile church is planted because there are no Jews. There are no Jews that are recorded anywhere in the early part of the history of Philippi. We don't exactly know why. We know that it only took 10 men to form a Jewish synagogue. They didn't even have 10 men. In all of the archaeological records of Philippi, and there are a lot of them, it's a very hot spot for archaeology, in fact, even is so today, the only mention of any Jewish writing or or artifact came from the Byzantine period, about 500 A.D., So there was simply no Jewish presence there. It could well be that the formal establishment and upward movement of Philippi was during the time when the Jews were being cast out of Rome. So because Philippi was so closely connected with Rome, they may also have kept any Jews from coming into the town. In any case, there were none, and thus the church that formed was exclusively Gentile. As we think about that exclusively Gentile church, there's some things that go along with it, and we'll see them in the book. There's little to no understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. So we have no Old Testament quotes or allusions. Almost the only place we see that in all of the scripture. A very unique situation. And we also see that um, within 50 years of Paul planning the church, that totally changed. In fact, Polycarp, who was one of the disciples of the Apostle John, indicates that Philippi was one of the most thoroughly saturated communities with the Old Testament scriptures in the early, um, first, in the early second century. 110 to 120 is when Polycarp was there. And he said that Philippi now had become thoroughly saturated with the scriptures. Well, What happens when people start to love the Lord and start to recognize all that God has been telling us about his coming Messiah? Well, I think I want to know a little bit about that. I think I want to get back into that Ezekiel. I think I want to get back into some of that Pentateuch and some of these other details. So at that point, they had fully embraced the Old Testament 50 years later. This is also the first Christian church in Europe. It's preceded only by the Jewish Christian community in Rome, which at that point, there was no church formed for. That church later formed, and it became the church of the Hebrews, to which Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, So as we think of those details, there's a lot of first, there's a lot of prominence to Philippi, but another thing we have to recognize about it, it was thoroughly pagan. No Jewish influence means no scriptural influence. The only thing that moved in this town with regards to religious programs or ideology was that of the emperor worship. It was that that came in from the cultures. Because it was so close to Neapolis, the boats from Ephesus coming through Troas and the boats from Corinth all came into this northern port. And immediately all came in the worship of the goddess Diana, the worship of Artemis, the temple prostitution of Corinth. 
So all of these things are coming in and there is this huge pagan syncretism that is going on in Philippi. But it is thoroughly pagan in every way. And along with that is the rampant immorality of the Roman culture, which was thoroughly saturated in every type of sexual perversion. So we have this very syncretistic religion saturated with immorality. Now, before we hit one more detail, I want to give you one very important point you need to make sure you try and remember as we go through this because it's going to continue to have an impact on it, and that is the dating, the dating of this book. Okay, when we think of it, the church was planted, as we've discussed, on Paul's second missionary journey. That would have been around 50 A.D., when this church was planted. Again, the first European church. But the letter that is written to them, which we're going to study, is written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. It's written about 61 or 62 A.D. So there is 10 to 12 years that evolves between the planting of the church and the writing of the letter. That is going to be very important as we move ahead and we'll need to continue to remind ourselves of it. The other things we see in the letter is that Paul writes to the church, he writes to the elders, and he writes to the deacons. Here in the first Gentile church, there is no question about whether somehow the structure of elders was only for the Jewish churches who understood the concept of elders from the Old Testament scriptures. Not at all. Immediately, as Paul established this church, he establishes it with elders and with deacons. And the letter is written to them and to the entire church. Um, The letter is, as I mentioned, written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Some say that it could have been written when he was imprisoned in Caesarea, before he was taken to Rome, back in about Acts 22, 23, 24, before he finally got on the boat and headed to Rome, which concluded at Acts 28. We'll see that there are elements of the discussion that clearly show that it could not have been Caesarea. There's discussion about Roman guards. Never would have occurred in Caesarea. Several other components about the freedoms that are given him, which in Caesarea were dramatically limited. Some have even said that perhaps he wrote it during an Ephesian uh, imprisonment. There's no biblical evidence of an Ephesian imprisonment. So that really doesn't hold any water. But should you run into that, if you're using some commentaries, know about those things. There were actually two Roman imprisonments. Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and he was released, was later arrested again. Many scholars believe that uh, it was at that time that Paul was able to go to Spain, where he desired to go when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, and uh, then was later um, arrested again, and that's where he wrote 1 and 2 Timothy prior to his demise somewhere in the period around 65, 66 A.D. So Paul writes to the church and the elders. Then in verse 3, he begins this prayer, this glorious prayer. And we're going to come back to all of this. But let's consider a few of the details that we've just talked about that will be so important as we move ahead. First, there is a thoroughly pagan culture and society that is surrounding the church at Philippi. Second, 
there is rampant immorality both in society and in the cultic worship. And, and of course, there's no knowledge of Christ as yet in this community. Third, there's no knowledge of the Scripture or of the Old Testament. Beloved, does that ring any bells? Pagan culture and society. Rampant immorality. No knowledge of Scripture. This is essentially the world in which we live. Now, we have many who, you know, we live in, in the Bible Belt, and so, you know, everyone knows a little bit about the Lord. Um, very few know the Lord, right? We understand that that's the case everywhere, right? 62% of America is Christian. Mm, thinking probably not from what I'm seeing around the country. 92% of Mobile is Christian. By the last U.S. Census, Mm, thinking maybe not. So, all that is going on in Philippi is all that is going on in our world. This is a book that is written as if it were written to us today. Incredible to recognize all that we're up against. Rampant immorality, the only thing that's different, and I found this striking as I considered this, as, is as yet in the church that is calling themselves Christian, although there is almost every abomination in many of the churches that are calling themselves Christian, we're not yet seeing open immorality within the church. As we consider the Lord's return and all of the perversion that will occur, um, I guess I say that all to say brace yourself because if it happened then, it, it will likely happen again. And so we need to understand that and just be prepared uh, and continue to recognize where we need to be. So, beloved, as this is our culture and so intensely, in, intensely applicable to us, but there is one other dominant theme. Paul's love. Paul's love. No rebuke to this church. The only gospel that holds this. No rebuke to the church at Philippi. The church of Corinth, boom, 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 boom. He's slapping them around right and left. The church in Galatia starts off, says, what are you doing? Turn into another gospel. What's wrong with you? Hammers them. The church in Thessalonica, oh, you're a great church, I love you. But what are you doing not working? At the end of the second epistle to the Thessalonians, he who does not work shall not eat. Ouch. But not the Thessalonians this good church or not the Philippians rather this good church that Paul loved and even amidst his imprisonment this theme of joy and rejoicing we're going to see a roadmap for our church to follow in this book we're going to see a roadmap for a good church in the midst of a pagan and immoral society in the midst of a situation where people around say they know the, the, the word of the Lord and they have no idea. They contextualize it, they, they spill it out like it were so much wisdom and they have no idea what it means nor where it comes from. If you took most of those that say they are Christian in our country and in our city and you gave them a little quiz of eight or ten phrases, whether they were from the Bible, cleanliness is before godliness, absolutely they would say that comes out of the Bible. Well, there's a problem with that because it doesn't. 
And we need to understand that we are going to see, as we move through this text, the most incredible presentation of how we are to function as a church, how we are to be encouraged. And I'll tell you, amidst the theme of joy and rejoicing over 17 times, those two words, in this short four-chapter gospel, and many would say, including D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and who am I to argue with the great doctor, um, I'm not sure that joy is the main theme of the book. Uh, there is uh, a pastor that I had uh, worked alongside in California and some others, um, R. Kent Hughes, some of you may know of his work, Disciplines of a Godly Man, and uh, some other men, Homer Kent, who would say that the main theme of Philippians is unity, is unity. I think that that's exactly what we're going to see. It makes it more applicable to us. It makes it more exciting And we are going to see some absolutely great stuff in the weeks and months ahead as we roll through this great epistle.